A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. Our guest this week is Harriet Evans. Her new book is The Garden of Lost and Found. It's out right now. We talk a lot about the writing of that. Also about the writing of her new new book. It's not even out yet. It's provisionally called The Outsider. And we talk about the ideas that she's got and how writing that is different from how she's written stories before. Uh, We also speak about how she knows what her role is as a commercial novelist and how that affects her editing as well. And why really for her, editing is the most important part of the process. And you can find out why she's learned about how the story really will just do what it wants. When I was a secretary at a publishing house, Um, an editor came in one day with one of her authors and I said, oh, I liked your new book. I was like 22, I was, you know, hung over all the time. I was a hopeless secretary. And I said, I liked one of your books. And she said, oh, yes, I didn't know that this would happen. And it was such a surprise when so-and-so appeared. And I was like, I mean, what does that mean? I just thought it was the most... And now I do know what she means. I wouldn't say it like that. But I have learnt that I have to pay attention to what the story's going to want to do. And Stay there, it's all on the way in this week's Writer's Routine with Harriet Evans. Yes, welcome along. Uh, my name's Dan Simpson, this is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors around, how they managed to turn an idea into many hundred pages of a novel. This week, it's Harriet Evans. She's published 11 novels. Her new one is The Garden of Lost and Found. It's all about Julie. Julie has sent the key to Nightingale House. And when she's inside, she finds a forgotten world waiting for her to explore. Uh, It's going great guns at the moment. I can't really get on a tube in London without seeing huge posters for The Garden of Lost and Found. We talk about how Harriet first had that idea from a story, how it actually developed from an earlier idea that she had. Now, Harriet used to work in publishing, and she talks a lot about how that really affected the way that she tells stories for the better. It's quite a twisty, turny chat, this one. It goes here to there, uh, and you might need to keep up with it at times, uh, just because we flip between talking about The Garden of Lost and Found and that new, new one, the one that she's not even finished yet, the the provisionally titled Outsider that I mentioned earlier on. Uh, so we do flip-flop back and forth between the two, so I hope it's not too hard to keep across. It's a good one, though. Loads of tidbits and golden nuggets on, on ways to write and, and to make your storytelling just a little bit better. And Harriet's a brilliant laugh as well. It, it was such an enjoyable 45 minutes or so. And we kick things off, as always, talking about what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. I have two places where I write. Um, one is my study at home, and that is a small room at the top of my house. It's extremely cold in winter, despite the fact we have a radiator in there. I've got a plug-in radiator as well. I have a magnetic board in front of me, and it will have pictures, photographs of everything to do with my new book. Um I have whiteboard, a roll of whiteboard paper that attaches to the wall using um, static that I've written keywords on to remind me and quite often stuck post-its on. And I've got different marker pens and things. And I've got um, 
um, a kind of like post-its or little lists I've typed out for the bits set in the past because there's usually stuff set in the past like the the brand name of some shoes she'd buy to go dancing or what was number one that week or anything I mean just anything so that you are constantly being tricked back into that world um the view out of the window we're moving quite soon out of London to Bath and I'm not quite sure what my view will be then in fact I'm not quite sure what form my life will take so we have to be out of the house in six months six weeks we have anywhere to live that's part of a bigger issue let's just focus on the present the view out my window is our very tiny back garden and it has a silver birch tree which I love because it's huge and is always doing something different no matter what the time of year and there's a primary school and my children don't go there they go to another well my oldest one goes to one bit further down the street but I love the fact that this primary school the children run out at set times 10 30 on the dot and for 20 minutes it sounds like they're murdering each other and then they <laughs> run back in and the, it's completely quiet and we're in Islington so we're really quite far in central London but it's quite quiet the only noise is helicopters when you're that high up um, we get a lot of helicopters and that drives me up the wall the second place I write is the London Library, which is um, a private members' library set up by Carlisle and Tennyson. It's in St James's Square in Piccadilly, and it's a bit like Hogwarts. Um, it costs about forty pounds a month to belong to it, so that's like the cof- cost cost of a a coffee or a breakfast every day. And I joined that about nine years ago. My partner was a member, and he was like, "This place is great. You should go there." I just left work and was writing full time and that has these metal stacks that are just like grids and it has a million books in it and you can look on the top floor and look all the way down to the bottom and see these desks and these stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of books and you see really famous biographers in that in there and always always men writing books about the second world war and d-day i mean <laughs> the number of people in there at any one time writing books about churchill it's probably you about think 15 they of them. would have covered everything by now. No, you would think that. <laughs> but no, there's always room for more. Um, and so I, fo- I have a locker there. I keep a separate laptop there. Um, and we can, and so I can, I don't have to transport it from place to place. And I find the most remote corner and surround myself with like some catalogue of an Egyptian dig in 1842, you hear nothing. You are surrounded by books that have been there undisturbed for possibly a hundred years. No one will disturb you, and you absolutely feel. It's very hard to explain, but it's it's really hard to take yourself too seriously when you know you are one of many people who's been to that place and you are not nearly as great as some of the people who've been there. And it means you've burrowed yourself away and you are totally able to divest yourself of the massive paranoia and fears that surround yourself every day. So it's either get on the tube, struggle across London in rush hour, extremely unpleasant tube journey. Um, It's mega, mega busy um, when I get on and then get to this very, very quiet place or be at home at the top of the house and have to resist doing the washing, you know, answering the door when someone knocks on the door, um, being in for deliveries, just going downstairs and watching episodes of Frasier because it is a battle with me to get myself to the desk. Uh, And how do you decide what wins the battle? What makes you get up? travel across London to the library? When are you separating day by day? I have small kids and that rules my life now. When I started writing full time, I never went anywhere. I'd worked in publishing for um, 10, 12, 12, 13, 13 years. Um, and when I left to write full time, I was just on my own all day in my pyjamas. And I very quickly got, I, I think it was depression I became very, very anxious. I've always been prone to it. I have a very overactive imagination, which is a great thing in my job. Um, But being on your own all day, um, when you have no reason to get out of bed, no reason to go leave the house, and you can just go, yeah, I'm just going to sit here and write, is flipping brilliant. But it also means you are 
with yourself and your thoughts the whole time and that's not healthy so I tried to impose a structure on it I tried to impose a structure on it and the structure was going to the library and that was immensely helpful treat it like a day job I loved publishing I really adored it and I didn't leave because I was made redundant I or you know I was forced out due in murky circumstances (laughs) (laughs) um I left because I I realized I had to make a choice between the two and I couldn't you know you're always going to pick the writing career over the editing career I miss it every single day not just the people but the job itself it's a brilliant job to have um and so I tried for years to replicate that thing of going to an office and depending how I'm feeling and I'm sure we'll get into this uh, you know further on but it, it really depends what stage I'm at with the book and what kind of bit of the book I'm writing and how I'm feeling myself sometimes I just want to be at home I just really don't want to see other people not in a bad way Mm. but I just really like that thing of knowing I don't have to go out of the house I do the school run so I'm up and dressed I've said hi to some people I'm always the one hanging around at the end going hi guys (laughs) sure no I'd love a coffee but I never take my purse with me because I always assume I'm just going up and back down the road it's like 400 yards away so all these other nice parents are always like I will buy you a coffee but that is like the fifth time I bought you a coffee (laughs) spring for your coffee next time you stingy son so (laughs) I think I found the library and took up the suggestion of wanting to write there because I was starting to change slightly as a writer and it it appealed to that side of me when I started out I was writing books that were classed as chiclet and we can unpack that a bit more later as well but they were never just a pure straight a girl lives in a flat and has unsuitable boyfriends um there was always like a bit more about I've always been interested in where you've come from where you're going who your parents are what your background is why you're this way you know the childhoods we have inform everything we're doing now the families what you're you know what you're doing at at Christmas all of that is as interesting to what makes a person as the flat they live in the job they do in the city all of all of that so the the more I was writing the more experienced I got the more confident I got um the more I realised I wanted to write about not just this one quite linear story, but go back in the past, explore bigger themes, have more complicated storylines. And I really admire genre writers like Georgia Heyer, who is one of my favourite writers, or, um, I don't know, those Patrick O'Brien books, or Dick Francis, people who can write every year you know, they're some of the greatest novelists ever, but people who can write every year or every other year an 80,000-word book that is perfect and very similar to the other books they've written before, and it be really good and fresh every time, that is astonishingly hard to me. I have to be absolutely starting afresh every time I write a new book, and I have to be completely obsessed with the book I'm writing to be able to write it. So I will always write about the things that interest me. I'm not going to write a fantasy novel. I would one day like to try a memoir or try and write a children's book. Those are two things that I'd love to try and experiment with. But I, it's the world that I'm creating that more and more and more, I'm like, oh, no, this has to have something more to it to keep me interested. So my last book, The Wildflowers, it's about a holiday home um, by the sea it's about this very glamorous family that lives there and they're golden and gorgeous it's on the Dorset coast they're fa- famous family of actors um, and when the book opens this house has been abandoned for years and years and the daughter doesn't speak to the father anymore he's died many years previously she doesn't speak to any of the family at all you don't understand why the breach has happened you go back to the second world war and him their famous actor living there when he was a boy having been evacuated from London and he's living there with his great aunt who's an archaeologist so I found out everything I need I could about Baghdad Mm. about Nimrod about those statues in the British Museum you know the ones that are blown up in Mosul I am an expert in Assyrian sculptures in the palaces of Nineveh um, and I was able to do that because of the library. And the library makes you go, we've got every comment, copy of the Times from 1789. If I want to check the cricket scores, if I want to check what happened on a certain day, I can do that. If I want to have a character who speaks, you know, some ancient weird tuk-tuk dialect from the lower Congo, I can look that up. And that gives you the confidence to go, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put this in my book. As long as it makes a good story. Well, I was going to say, even if it doesn't make a good story, do you find yourself sometimes 
perhaps working into your plot things that you know that you can research because it's available to you. Maybe you are inserting cricket scores from the, the early 1900s because you know that, hang on, the Times is right behind me and I can look that up. Yeah, it's made me just think more. There should be no bar on my imagination and I don't need to set any limit on it. And I am never going to... Ha- be the kind of novelist who suddenly breaks the fourth wall or tries something massively experimental. Um, I am a storyteller and it's my job to construct a world that you, if you pick up my book, completely buy and fall in love with and want to stick with and are totally wrapped up in. And to do that, you have to believe every single bit of the world I've constructed. So that means if I have to research arts and crafts houses because they live in an arts and crafts house, I will know everything it's possible to know about them. And my last book, the book that's just out, Mm -hmm. um, it has a painting in it, a really famous painting that I invented. I did history of art A-level and it was Victorian artists and I love them because they're so cheesy and it's so kind of over sentimental and it's it's brilliant. <laughs> but I found out so much more about them again because of the library. I was just able to read, you know, they were quite a sort of it was a bit like Dynasty of the eighteen nineties, constantly people like wife swapping or killing themselves, or you know, lots of like very dramatic A list stuff. Um I was able to read everything I needed to about that. And so you think, I'll have this painter, and instead of him just being a painter, I can create this whole world, I can believe the painting, I can look up every single Victorian painting from that era. And so the library doesn't work for me all the time, but it's always there, it's like an extra part of my brain. It's like carrying around an extra extra brain that you know you just can unlock, and I can just do it by swiping it in. And for 40 quid a month, for how it's transformed my writing, just it's just it's been everything let me quickly take you back to the room initially when you're up in the office you mentioned you've got a whiteboard static to the wall Mm -hmm. which you write keywords and to jog your memory give me an example of the type of keywords that you would use what type of things are jogging your memory are they plot focused are they adjectives are they things about your character I start every book with an image. It comes to me when I'm not looking for it. It's hard to talk about it without sounding really woo-woo. I'm not particularly woo-woo. This show, I I found, has been a bit of a a nice little hostel for woo-woo. So you you can plough on with that. Yeah, and I love that thing of it's a massive combination between sounding bonkers Mm -hmm. and being incredibly disciplined and I've made peace with both sides of that and um yeah the 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 process that's quite important is this idea that I have a sort of just a few key thoughts and words it's also a spare room we've got um like a ikea daybed in there and i kind of hate people sleeping in there because i don't want them to see i have to feel totally free to write down the most bonkers stuff on it um and not and not feel like i'm being stupid so i'll just have written in different marker board it's also an excuse to uh, buy stationery which is just <laughs> always like you know um i'll just have written like key words jealousy a family at war i don't know i mean you know the book i'm writing at the moment is called provisionally The Outsider. It probably won't be called that in the end. And I have this image of this girl arriving at this house in the height of summer and there is a very glamorous girl her age in a bikini, a red bikini. She's quite voluptuous. She's very, very, very gorgeous. And a brother, a kind of lowering twin brother next to her. And they're by this very ancient swimming pool which has very like green turquoisey water and the swimming pool's really old and the house is really old and I can see them and quite often the final product ends up being quite different from that central image but at the moment I know that this girl is an outsider hence the title and that she desperately wants to be one of them. And that thing of when you're younger and you see a family, you know, there's a family at school who you spend time with, or when you go to university and you go to someone's house and their life is so different, or someone you share a flat with or someone you work with, you just think, I want their life. I want their life. They are just so 
they're not me. And what that's like and what if that family didn't want to actually be like them. And then there's a massive twist halfway through, which I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pull off. But that's the other thing that as I've gone on, I really like making things as hard for myself as I possibly can. So I'll have all that stuff around, these quite weird, blank, abstract ideas. Um, And then on the magnetic board, say for the Garden of Lost and Found, I had two pictures that were inspiration pictures. I had some paintings of, by quite well-known real-life painters, of what I wanted the actual people to look like. I had a couple of quotes. Um, One is Eleanor Roosevelt, do something every day that scares you. Um, And the other one is one about um, how dismissed women's fiction is and books by women are versus books about men's lives. Um, And that kind of powers me on. And sort of little quotes about Garden of Lost and Found, super complicated. There's lots of different time periods going on. First World War stuff, 1870s. I've got a picture of William Morris's Um, membership of the Hammersmith Socialist League because William Morris was a big inspiration for the book. Just little things that when you look at, it starts and it's like you go back in time and you are entering into that world. And when I was an editor, I realised that the most important thing is that you don't cut any corners. If you're not sure about that sentence, just go back and make the sentence bloody better and the author might be pissed off. But it will make the sentence better. And so I've realised I have to do everything I possibly can to just get to the little point that will, this is really woo-woo, unlock the rest of the story from my mind and my imagination. I have two small children. That completely rules everything about my writing. And it is, um, it's full-on, but it is so much less full-on than if I had an office job. Or as I sometimes term it, a job. And people are like, but you do have a job. I'm like, oh yeah, I do have a job. <laughs> um, I have realised that I have to take my job really seriously because I am always the one who will go and pick the kids up from school if they're ill. I will always the one who will go to the meeting at 3.45 because my partner works full time and he's in an office. He's super hands on and he will also take them to a doctor's appointment or like he works at home on Wednesdays. So he is picking them up today and doing the double pickup. We're talking now, it's four o'clock. My daughter has a piano lesson now. My other daughter is only three. She's at nursery, she's still really small. Someone has to go and pick her up. Everything is about trying to work these things out Um, and making sure that they aren't just left to moulder in after school clubs every single day but also that I take my job seriously and that I have enough time to write because I realised and this is quite a girl thing I think for a while I was always coming last and my job is really important and I think my job's really valuable and I'm the breadwinner which is also a financial consideration but if I don't write I don't get paid and we can't pay the mortgage an ideal day would be I drop my daughter off at school I walk to the tube I get on the tube I'm in Piccadilly waiting outside the library to get a good desk because the good desks go fast and I don't want to be sitting with lots of people I don't want to be distracted also I'm constantly looking for people to talk to as you can tell I like talking Mm. quite a lot I'm constantly looking for people to talk to and I will just be like oh hi hi library friend do you want to go for coffee you like the seclusion in the library that's why I have to have the seclusion I I know myself it's for their benefit rather than yours it's for my benefit okay um, because I know myself I have to impose it I have earplugs I have freedom software um I, yeah, I set up as much as I can so I can't be distracted. So in an ideal work day, what time are you getting to the library? So I get there at 9.30 and then I will faff around for absolutely ages. I'll look on right move. Um, I'll do emails. I'll do Twitter. Um, I faff, faff, faff. I have to dance around it for quite a long time. And it's pathetic and I loathe myself. And then I'll have arranged to meet someone for lunch at one o'clock and I'll be thinking, well, this is ridiculous. I mean, I thought I'd be working by quarter to ten. I mean, it's almost farcical how late it is. I hate myself. And then, of course, the moment I have to go and meet them, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know what I want to write now. And I'll write solidly for 15 minutes, you know. When I go back from lunch, maybe I'll have stopped to shop a bit and pick up some food. And if, say, it's a good day and I'm able to work late, um... I'll think, oh, God, you know. And sure enough, at about four o'clock, 40 minutes before I need to go, (laughs) 
I'll do some really, really hardcore quality writing. I used to find, before I had children, I would faff around all day. And my partner then had a job, which meant he worked really late. And I'd dick around and do nothing. And then at about 3.30, just as the energy is starting to fade from the day, 3.34, especially in winter, when there's nothing else you can possibly do. It's about the sort of energy of the day. If you feel other people are around and answering emails and distractions are around, you will be distracted by them suddenly I would write non-stop for three hours. And my natural rhythm is to write very early in the morning or between 3.30 to 7.30. You do not have to have children to know those are peak childcare hours <laughs> and you can't. So I've had to shoehorn it in. So I do, I try and do that. If I'm, uh, if I'm at home, it's a similar thing. I often won't have lunch. I'll just write on through. Once I get going, I write really fast and I'm, constantly trying to get myself into this world it is all about being in this world whether through imagination and sensory deprivation in the library or from being in this place in my office where I have put cues in place to get there so that once I'm in it it feels really real to me and that I I'm believing everything they do and that is the key, key, key thing for me. And then I find I can write really fast. I can touch type. I was an assistant. That's the only skill I possess, really. Um, and I'll write quite fast just to get it down. And at the moment, with my last book, I plotted it out line by line by line, practically. And with this book, it changes from book to book, depending on what the book is and what the story is and how it feels. I have to tease it out a bit and work out. I've tried plotting this one and it will not be plotted. I cannot... Why do you think that is, very quickly? What, why, why won't it be plotted? Well, I was just about to say... Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, that is the thing. I, When I was a secretary at a publishing house... Um, an editor came in one day with one of her authors and I said, oh, I liked your new book. I was like 22, I was, you know, hung over all the time. I was a hopeless secretary. And I said, I liked one of your books. And she said, oh, yes, I didn't know that this would happen. And it was such a surprise when so-and-so appeared. And I was like, <laughs> I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> I just thought it was the most. And now I do know what she means. I wouldn't say it like that. But I have learnt that I have to pay attention to what the story's going to want to do. And that's why you're so nice to say it's, this is like a safe space to be as woo-woo <laughs> as you want. Um, it is really weird. The last book, I had to plot it all out. I did it really methodically. There was a lot of material. I knew I could do the research after that and just get the story down. And it then went through a lot of editing. I will always be edited loads. This one, I'm having to tease the story out bit by bit because this image of these people and this outsider and this massive twist that happens halfway through, I'm still not quite sure what's happening. But the more I try and plot it, the more it goes wrong. The more I just sit there and write, the more these things happen and I didn't know they were going to happen. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Just very quickly before we get back into it with Harriet, uh, this podcast is supported by Libro.fm audiobooks. They let you purchase audiobooks directly from your favourite local bookstore. And if you're in America, 
only if you're in the United States right now. Hopefully that will change in, in the next few months. But right now, if you're in America, um, uh, we've got a brilliant offer for you. You get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest company out there. You know the ones that we're talking about. The, the thing is, you're part of a much different story, one that supports the writing community and gives back to authors and to writers and that's really what we're about on the show again if you're listening to this in the united states uh, you get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one uh, so you need to go to libro.fm l-i-b-r-o.fm and you enter the code routine r-o-u-t-i-n-e and then with each listen you can take pride in the fact that you're supporting your local bookstores this is only if you're in america but i know there is quite a chunk of you who are listening in the states if that's you if you want to support the writing community help the podcast out and have an alternative way of taking in stories you can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month go to libro.fm and enter the code routine also remember there's still a chance for you to support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine if you really love what we do if you've enjoyed the last 80 episodes or so if you've learned any tips or tricks that has helped the way that you write and tell your stories uh, i'd love for you to say thanks by just pledging a dollar or so a month over on our patreon uh, we've got loads of merch that you can get your hands on there as well I, I, i've been sending that out quite frequently over the last week or so i'm really flattered uh, by all the pledges that we've been getting recently uh, if you would like to do the same if you want some writers routine merch if you want to say thanks to the show for all the tips if you want to help us bring you as many episodes as we can as frequently as you can that's what you need to do you need to go to patreon.com forward slash writers routine and just pledge whatever you can. I promise everything goes a long way. It's all worthwhile and I really appreciate it. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back into it then with Harriet Evans, our guest on this week's Writers Routine, talking about how she sorts out her day, the fact that she escapes to a library in the centre of London, but she can only do it when she's got childcare sorted out. Also, what it's like being the breadwinner as well. We talk about how she got the idea for The Garden of Lost and Found and how it was actually adapted from an earlier idea that she had. Uh, We talk about her love of editing and why she thinks that a huge amount of books that are out there at the moment on the market, they need way more editing. They could be so much better. Angie takes us through why sitting in a country pub a few years ago with her family made her realise that actually she needs to edit her work a lot more. Uh, We get back into it talking about plotting because she's already said that she doesn't really plot that much but she must plot a little bit. I think everyone plots just a teeny bit even if they don't openly admit it. So for Harriet, how does she do it? I am plotting in that um, I have written down lots of stuff I want to happen. So I keep a file called blah, blah, book ideas, whatever the new one is. (laughs) And I will just write and I have a file on my phone that transfers across to it. I will just write every time I think, oh, that guy's like that. Um, One of them's a teacher and one of them's a barrister. So I walk on my way here. I walked past Temple Gardens And I saw someone do something. I was like, yeah, she'd be like that. You know, you just keep adding stuff to it. And the more you keep adding, the more you keep it in your mind, the more little stuff, things will start to work themselves out. I've plotted it out, but it's not sticking to that plot. So there are two or three major things I want to hit. What's more important for me is to have done the homework and the research so that there are no other doubts in my mind about about the world they're in. So half of it's set in 1989, half of it's set in the present day. And it opens with this woman going missing. She's meeting her husband to go on a romantic weekend to Paris. She realises she's lost her passport, left it back at the um, office. She said, I'll just pop back and get it. It's two stops on the tube. They're at the Eurostar. Mm. He never sees her again. And just before she leaves, a woman with a bee tattoo on her arm has sort of bumped into her and stared at her. And you start to realise that's got something to do with it. And you start switching between these two women who are apparently completely unconnected. And then you go back to 1989. God, as I'm saying, I'm thinking, this book sounds great. I've been thinking it's so rubbish all along. And you go back to 1989 and you see this summer where they're together and what happened. And I'm just always interested in that these things in the past. And if I've got the past right and I've got the house right 
and I've got what music they'd be listening to, what the kitchen might look like. So I keep a pop-up book for every single book. This is even more important than the stuff on the wall. Um, there's always a dwelling of some form in my books, the last four or five books. It's super important to the plot. I buy a pop-up book from an art shop, or you get them from Amazon, and it's a kit to make a pop-up book for children, and you can cut bits out of it, but they've put in for you the um, you know, the bits that pop up, and I will put, say, for the Garden of Lost and Found... No, so to keep talking about The Outsider, I've got photos I've taken of houses, photos I've taken in books of houses that I've printed out that I stick on, swatches of material, photos of the chapel, there's stuff about bees in there, lots of stuff about bees. Um, floor plan, there's always a floor plan. So if I need to know, you don't need to know this, I need to know where the bathroom is on the floor where this girl who arrives from nowhere and, and is staying. I have to know what her room looks like. I have to know all of that. And, what, and that won't be in the book, but if I've believed it, you will believe the story I'm telling. Lastly, on the day on a good one how many words are you getting through if i'm so the third thing i do is go away by myself i'm doing that next week i'll go away for three nights i mean it used to be like three four nights it used to be a week i used to go to miami before i had kids twice i went to miami by myself the life of a successful author flipping amazing i stayed in a lovely hotel god it's bloody brilliant now i go away i just miss them too much and i the three-year-old especially would be too sad um i will go away next week i can write like five thousand words a day when i'm absolutely on it mm. but that's the most i've ever written um maybe five is a bit more four um in a good week when i'm absolutely like on one of those weeks i'd hope to write fifteen thousand words the most i'm writing normally on a good average week is 3,000 words but you know quite often I'm not doing that because I'm seeing my dad I'm picking a kid up I've got on this I've done this I've done that. and there's publicity that gets in the way I only count work as when I'm sitting there writing words I don't count it as doing my tax return talking to you I'm doing an event this evening you know I went and stood by a tube poster with my sister because my book's all over the tube at the moment um, and took photos and put it on Instagram I don't count any of that as work for me only I don't even count research as work. The only thing that counts to me as work is how many words you wrote that week. So how many days do you tend to get down and are able to actually sit there and write? So I work four days a week. I'm with my three-year-old on the fifth day. Um, but she'll go to full-time school next year. So actually I will have f- five days to do. I mean, what will I do? I'll just do... Um, <laughs> right, you work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think I will look back on these years and think, you know, I, I went back to work with both of them after they were both like six months old because I don't get paid, you know, and that was quite hard. And I was only doing two days a week, three days a week, but I knew I had to, I couldn't lose my brain. I was obsessed with this idea, you're self-employed, you have to keep on at it, you know. Um, so it's four days a week. I really would hope to have done some writing work on any of those days, but quite often it will happen that I haven't, or quite often it will happen that I've done all, all day and I loathe myself and you talk to another writer and they say exactly the same thing and you're like fumigrew you're not the worst person ever I was writing another book a quite complicated book about four women who move into a flat on the day Tony Blair becomes prime minister it was going to be a 90s novel and I sing in a choir and we had an end of term concert and this woman stood up and sang a variety hall song called There Are Fairies at the Bottom of Our Garden it's a very whimsical song it's adorable she did it really well and it's all about this little girl who goes and plays with fairies at the bottom of the garden. And I saw this painting. I just could see it. I could see the children running through the garden. And the Garden of Lost and Found is the title of this painting, which is imaginary, but I based it on lots of other very popular paintings. And it, he paints it of his two children running through this beautiful garden. And to get to this point where he lives in this beautiful house with these two lovely children and his wife, they go through many terrible things. And it preserves forever this perfect moment of happiness for them. And then everything goes wrong. And the book opens in 1919 with him burning the painting. And you're like, why would you burn your most precious thing? What, what, what would lead you to do that? And so the moment, you know, I was talk- talking earlier about, you know, this image. This is the ultimate one, really, because the image I saw turned out to be this painting you know and and I can see it in my mind's eye and one of the things that pleases me most about the reviews and the reader reviews especially is I could see that painting I believed it I believed that those children looked like that I believe the garden I can see it I know what the house looks like and to go back to the earlier point you know I want I want that to feel real and that that's what yeah that's when it came to me so I junked the other book was like wow you had the painting then 
No, no, I invented it. Yeah, yeah no, yeah, in, sorry, yeah, in, yeah, You yeah. had your painting in your mind, <laughs> yeah. and then you have immediately started to talk, tell me about everything else that was going on. How did it get from the painting to that, though? How did you get have this idea for the painting, and then then suddenly you've got the the, the family, the man, the old man who's painted it. He the, he's then burning it. How does that happen? What happened next after the very initial idea of the painting? I suppose it's a culmination of all the things I've been talking about, which is I have confidence to follow um, random leads now. Uh, this is my 11th book. I've sold a million copies. I've been doing this a long time. I was an editor before that. I know when nothing seems clear that you shouldn't panic. And that is a really crucial piece of advice for anyone. When you are thinking this isn't working, this isn't the story I wanted to write. I just have these fuzzy ideas I'm going to, I've always wanted to write a book about the Pre-Raphaelites. I love Victorian stuff. I love Edwardian things. I've always wanted to write about, a, you know, mysterious garden. I wanted to write The Secret Garden for Grown Ups. So I just kept following all these leads. I spent two months doing nothing but reading biographies of Victorian paintings, painters that I loved, of looking at books. I didn't do anything writing-wise. And that was the most crucial formative period of writing the book. I didn't set, you know, I didn't do any of it. And then I started writing the synopsis. But I had the confidence, which a lot of people don't, and I wish they would, to go, I am taking this time out. Even though it wasn't time out, it's very valuable time to just go, I don't know what this book is, but I've got to write it. And look how that's worked out. I'd like to cut in there, though, just because I want to try and unpack that inkling that you had. So it's all well and good having this image of, of a picture and then giving yourself time out to research things. But how did you at all develop a plot based on that image? How did you know what you would be researching to give that some substance and make a 300-page novel? I suppose it's the themes that just interest me. Um, that again, you can't be too... Um, well, how will that picture fit in you're you're always trying to ask yourself questions but not in too formulaic a way so there were just things I felt about it I knew that it was probably really sad it's so hard to try and describe it I knew that if you painted this picture and it was great and that there was a house around it that something terrible must have happened and then I thought what would happen if you had this picture and he destroyed it. And that's got to be the opening. And once I realised, I've s- tried to do this thing with my last few books where you have a prologue or just an, uh, you know, an opening paragraph when you're like, Broom! you know. And so I knew the opening paragraph had to be the most famous picture in the world is burnt. And it's actually not the opening paragraph, it's the opening kind of prologue, two, three pages. So once you've set yourself that challenge, you're like, oh God, how am I going to get out of this? It's like Houdini. And the only way to get out of it is by fully immersing yourself in that world and just keep on asking more and more questions. And the more you circle around it in a hazy way, the more you can then start to really um, drill down to uh, specific detail. And so it's a combination of this very hazy sort of swirling like a whirlwind and me writing down chapter one. We go back to the present day. A woman in a very unhappy marriage is, you know, hears on the radio that this painting is up for auction. A sketch of this painting is up for auction. Then that got tweaked to she actually works for the auction house. She's the great granddaughter of this person. So it doesn't matter if it's not perfect to start with. Just get the stuff down and start to try and linearize it. And then if that's wrong and that feels wrong, go back and tweak it. Because if you've had the swirling stuff around it beforehand, there'll be something that suggests itself to you. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. You've got these ideas that are swirling around in a whirlwind in your mind. What are you doing to pull down these concepts and actually linearize them? That's what I'm saying. You can't... But you've said for this story that you plotted this more than many stories that you've done before you know exactly what was happening because there's so much going on how did you figure out what the middle was when did it come to you how this is all going to end so I started with a paragraph and then I split it into parts three four parts expanding on that paragraph then I wrote bigger paragraphs about each part so every time you're learning more and more about the story always with the ending in mind 
So you're trying to see the whole and split the whole up into little bite-sized chunks. It's like when you're super panicked about how much you've got to do. If you like just keep on being panicked, you won't get anything done. If you write down a list, buy a birthday card, take the stuff to dry cleaners, you know what I mean? Then it, you just break it down. And then I broke it down into chapters. Then I, re- you know, then I'd leave it, carry on doing research. You're just, you're m- managing all these things at a different time. Um, then I'd reread it and I'd be like, she wouldn't do that. The other thing to do is to think in relief when you're, when I'm singing my daughter a lullaby, when I'm walking down the street, to think, what's this character like? I ask myself questions about them all the time. And you've got to know them as people. Some of them I know right from the beginning, others I don't. So that present day heroine in the Garden of Lost and Found is married to this awful guy. And their marriage is disintegrating. And he had to be right because he has to have some humanity. He's actually kind of horrible. But, you know, you have to believe she'd have loved him and that he's gone wrong somewhere. And I couldn't get him and I couldn't get him. I just kept it open in my mind. And then one day we were at the airport and I saw this guy. He had a man bag. You knew he'd probably have been into blur, ocean colour scene. Um, he probably has an espresso maker or a moped. You know, he was that kind of guy. I know lots of guys like him. 90s, you know, very precise, very neat, very organised. I was like, yeah, that's what he's like. So he's got an espresso maker. He's a quarter Italian. He's very precise about everything. He hates how messy and disorganised she is. I could see him. So just always be asking yourself little questions about it and going into that world because then you'll do some of your homework so that the next day when you're coming to break it down, it's it's a little clearer. I really like being edited and one of the things that makes me saddest is how many books aren't very good and how many books should have had another edit and how many books are rushed into production because there is a financial obligation to get the money from them in that financial year and I had a moment a road to Damascus moment in a pub lovely country pub I was in with my partner and daughter and they had board games and old paperbacks up on a shelf and I looked up and there was one of my books I won't say which one and I didn't know it was going to be there obviously and I felt this pang wasn't a pang it was like lemon in my eyeball you know like a slicing hurt I thought that book is not good I don't want people picking it up it's not good enough it's fine it's fine but that it could have been better and I realized then and this guides everything I do I write books to be sold in airports I don't want to win the book prize I'm a super commercial novelist I'm in Asda I've got gold foil all over them they have to be really sodding good because if you work really hard all year round and you're in the airport with a kid pulling at your thingy and you pick up my book you need to have a really good holiday read that is my obligation to the reader and I'm really I'm getting quite worked up about it all that matters is in 50 years time someone goes into a holiday home or a pub and sees one of my books up on that shelf. They, they won't have heard of me, or 100 years time maybe, <laughs> they won't have heard of me, whatever. They pick that book up, they start to read it, they think it's good. That is, m- that is my only obligation to the reader. And the people I used to edit, like Penny Vincenzi, you know, you could pick up a Penny Vincenzi if you found it in someone's spare room, you know, you go to a bookshelf mm. and there's Agatha Christie's, you know you are going to have a good read. And that, is why editing is so important, that Mary, my editor, is an amazing editor. I do quite a lot of work to my books. Um, If you read the first draft, you would not think it was a very good book. It would not have won prizes. It wouldn't be at number six. You know, it wouldn't wouldn't have got the reviews it it got. Um, And that is because she made me do quite a lot of work to it. And then I went over it again and again and again and again. And this isn't work she made me do. I just read it, you know, these little tiny bits where a sentence isn't as good as it could be. You will never, you won't ever be able to go back and change it once it's done and it's out there and it's on that shelf. And it's it's just so important to make it as good as it possibly can be. Lastly, this is interesting. Why have you decided you're aside from the fact that you're in a contract, you know, with a publisher? Why have you decided that you're a commercial, uh, commercial fiction writer? Why couldn't you just up one day and try and write a booker? Um, I don't want to. I don't think literary fiction, a lot of literary fiction books aren't that good. Your question implies one's better than the other. No, not necessarily. No, no, but a lot of people would take that to mean that. Um, I have read a lot of literary novels, especially in the last year, I don't think are very good. I've read a lot of crime and thriller novels that have won prizes that I don't think are very good. I've read a lot of commercial women's fiction because if you write books about women's lives, it gets called women's fiction. If you write books about men's lives, it gets called fiction. I'm put in that bracket, but that doesn't mean to say my book shouldn't be really sodding good. I think, you know, I, I read some of my uh, contemporary, my fellow female novelists, and I, 
and I am astonished at the lack of recognition they get. So that's why you have to take a pause and a deep breath at the patronising way a lot of that stuff's treated. And you and I both know, like, I a lot of literary fiction should be experimental. You know, my favourite book of last year is Normal People, yeah. and that is because it takes romantic comedy and does something in well just romance it's a romance and it's written in a completely unique way it's a beautiful perfect book but i was a judge at the booker uh the bookseller awards and one of the other books we had to judge what other books on the shortlist was milkman now milkman is not everyone's cup of tea but it won the booker prize i didn't love it that much but i can still see it's a work of immense importance and really incredible but i'm a storyteller and I want people to be in a world and just totally love being in the snug gorgeousness of that world. And that's what my contract is with the reader. You know, I want, I just, I, I really want you to be able to curl up on the sofa and just lose yourself in it. Just take it, it will take you away from your life and everything that you're in at the moment. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Massive thank you to Harriet Evans uh, for sparing the time and for coming on the show, telling us all about her working day. Her brand new book, The Garden of Lost and Found, is out right now. Uh, And keep your eyes peeled in the next year or so for the new new book, the one that's not even been published yet. I don't think it's even been finished. Uh, Provisionally called The Outsider. I guess we'll find out the actual title that she goes for uh, pretty soon, I'd imagine. Listen, our next episode of the show, which is in the next week or so, hopefully, uh, it's with Jeffrey Archer, one of the most successful authors that's writing today, sold over 270 million copies or something utterly preposterous like that. He's coming on to talk about his brand new series and the first novel in it called Nothing Ventured. And we'll find out how he keeps getting ideas Uh, to carry on writing stories after 40 years or so or however long it's been Uh, that's next time on writer's routine Uh, before then uh, remember to take advantage of the libro.fm audiobook offer if you live in the united states if you live anywhere else in the world though and you're enjoying what we're doing uh, you can always pledge to support the show over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine make sure you give us a follow on twitter and instagram as well uh, so you're across everything that's happening on the show yeah and i'll see you soon chatting to jeffrey archer Uh, I can't wait for you to hear that one. Uh, Until then, I'll see you next time. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.